Happy December, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Practicology Podcast, where we want to help you bridge the gap between the scriptures and everyday life. Yes, and while we know it maybe isn't the case for all of you listeners, for many of you, this is the month where everyday life involves lots of anticipation and some special planning because of the Christmas season. So we're going to participate in that with you today by looking at part of the scripture's record of the birth of Christ. Now, in one sense, I don't need a special month or day on a calendar to celebrate the birth of Christ. I try to celebrate that every day. I am so thankful today that he came to save us from our sins. But the calendar does provide us with some good reminders and opportunities to point people to this wonder of grace that God was manifest in the flesh. Yeah, and this is going to be interesting, Matthew, because... Today, you're going to bring us the grace of Christmas from our Lord Jesus's genealogy as it's... Wait! Stop the presses. (laughs) You just said interesting and genealogy in the same sentence. And some of our listeners probably almost turned us off in a gobsmacked state of flabbergastness. And I just want to say to y'all, the genealogy of Christ in the gospel according to Matthew blows my mind. And while I can't go into all the nitty-gritty today, we'd like you to stick with us here for about 20 minutes or so and see if you can find a present with your name on it wrapped up in Matthew chapter 1. Well, you are whetting our appetite, Matthew. In fact, this genealogy sounds better than a bowl of Christmas pudding. Let me read some of it for you, not all of it. Verses 1 to 3 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Jacob, this is down to verse 16 now, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Thank you, Mike, for the reading and for not reading all of it, but what a fascinating way to start the scriptures of the new covenant by linking the Christ with these two massive figures of the Old Testament, David and Abraham. We should always remember, beloved, that our new covenant faith, the New Testament gospel, is rooted in the Old Testament and the history of Israel. The New Testament opens with the language of fulfillment. The arrival of the Messiah was the fulfillment of ancient promises in the Old Testament a thousand years earlier to David and another thousand years before that to Abraham. So God's purposes do take time, but he keeps his word. He always keeps his word. Amen. Always good to remember. But Matthew, a question. If Abraham lived over a thousand years before David, why does the author speak of Jesus as the son of David before calling him the son of Abraham? Yeah, a couple of possibilities. Being the son of David gives the Lord Jesus the right to David's throne as king of Israel. That's the Davidic covenant. But the covenant promises to Abraham were different. For example, he and his offspring were promised the land. The son of David was promised the throne. The son of Abraham was promised the land. But Israel really has no God-given right to the land of promise until the nation repents and recognizes Jesus as their king. Maybe that's one reason why son of David is placed before son of Abraham. Once Christ has the throne, then he will rule with his people In the land. The second thing is Matthew's emphasis in this opening section is Jesus Christ's right to the throne. He's building up to that. The next chapter has the wise men from the east worshiping the one born king with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Last month, we did a few episodes on the law or the principles of living in his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. But at the outset of his gospel, Matthew is presenting us the birth of the king. Remember, Luke's genealogy goes in the opposite direction. It goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, linking Jesus with mankind generally. Matthew is emphasizing fulfillment. Israel's Messiah, the ultimate son of David, who has the right to sit on the throne. Very good, Matthew. But while there is an emphasis on Jesus as the king to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, isn't there something broader implied in the reference to Abraham too, that Abraham is also the father of many nations? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. This is the beautiful thing about Abraham. On the one hand, he's the father of the nation, Israel. But God also said all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And of course, Christ is the way that that would be fulfilled. So something else I think is so awesome is here at the beginning of the gospel, Matthew does point out Jesus as the son of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And how does he end his gospel? Go and make disciples of all nations. This blessing of Abraham will extend to all nations, all peoples through Christ, the son of Abraham. So this man who was born king of the Jews is for us too. He is for all people. Well, Matthew, I think there is a present here for all of us. It is the Lord Jesus himself. So you've taken us to Abraham so far. And after we leave Abraham in this genealogy, another interesting thing pops out at us. It's the inclusion of certain women. And customarily in the biblical genealogies, it is the men who are mentioned. But Matthew includes four women early on in this genealogy, long before we even get to Mary. Yeah, and you read about all of them, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, four beautiful portraits of the grace of God. All of them found themselves in some very difficult circumstances. Tamar had lost her husband. She was promised another one, but the promise wasn't honored. And when she concocted an immoral solution to her predicament, the first response from Judah is that such a woman be stoned. But when Judah knows all the facts, he concludes, Tamar is more righteous than I. And this woman who played the part of a prostitute with Judah is then tied into the genealogy of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. It's outrageous. It's wonderful. It's amazing grace. And isn't it amazing that when her twin sons are being born, one of them has a scarlet thread wrapped around his hand. And a scarlet thread is prominent in the story of the next woman in the genealogy, which is Rahab. Rahab, another prostitute. It's only Matthew, interestingly, the tax collector that records the Lord's words to the chief priests and elders, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And of all the residents of Jericho, it was the courage and faith of Rahab that God used to encourage the spies. Maybe there's a sister listening to this or a brother, and you've got a, a past that contributes to some people disrespecting you. Of course, the truth is we all have skeletons in our closets. Some of those skeletons become public and some don't. But failure is not final with God. Failure is not final with God. And here's a woman that chooses to trust God and bravely chooses to love God's people. And in Hebrews 11 and James 2, God commends her for her faith. She is woven into this lineage of grace as well. Awesome. And now we come to woman number three. That's Ruth. Now, there's no record of impropriety in her life, but it is interesting that she was a Moabitess, a people that came into existence 
from an unlawful, incestuous sexual relationship between Lot and his daughters. And she was certainly in difficult circumstances, having lost her husband, forced to choose between her homeland and Naomi. And she gives us those beautiful words, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Amen. And then the fourth is Bathsheba, guilty of adultery with King David, but to be fair, I'm not sure how much say Bathsheba would have had in that matter. The king was the person of power, and the king deals with the consequences of his sinful action by murdering Bathsheba's husband. The first child, their first child together, dies in infancy. But while the government of God was at work in David's life, there is grace as well. And this woman is added to the genealogy of the king of righteousness, a pure and holy and faithful bridegroom. But Bathsheba isn't called Bathsheba in Matthew 1.6. She is described as the wife of Uriah. And I think Matthew describes her that way just to emphasize uh, the circumstances that that relationship came to be. He's saying, look, these people were real people with messed up lives. They made mistakes. Yet in the sovereignty and grace of God, God brings a savior from this people. The divine commentary on these things to me is Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Or even here in Matthew 1, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is a Messiah who has come not to a perfect people, but to a sinful people, not to join them in their sins, but to save them from their sins. I agree, Matthew. It really does seem like Matthew is trying to highlight the grace of God in this genealogy. He goes out of his way. He, he could have worded this in such a way to, to smooth over some of this history and, and some of these sins. But instead, he calls attention, almost as if he's boasting in the cross already, that Christ's salvation is is for the sinner. And Amen. it's interesting, this is the very first page of the New Testament, as you mentioned, and from the very earliest words of our New Testament, there's hope, there's salvation being offered, being implied for, for the most sinful of us. Thank the Lord. And another interesting thing in this genealogy, not only, not only are there four women whom the Spirit of God determined to include, but there are four men whom the Spirit of God determined to exclude. The grace and government of God are often seen side by side in Scripture. Four women woven into the genealogy by grace. Four men cut out in government. In the middle of verse 8, three men are excluded. They were all connected with the sins of Ahab and Jezebel. Then at verse 11, Jehoiakim is excluded. Remember, he's the man that cut up the Bible in Jeremiah 36. And the man who snipped up the Scriptures is snipped out of the Savior's genealogy. And that's part of Matthew's interesting mathematics, isn't it? I mean, he, he divides up his genealogy into three groups of 14 generations, but he takes a few liberties to get to the 14. Obviously, these are spirit superintended liberties, but it is very peculiar. Peculiar indeed. But the interesting thing about those three groups of 14 is that each of those three eras began with great potential. The first era started with Abraham, to whose offspring the land was first promised. But that era comes to a close with a king in the land, all right. But he shed a lot of blood to secure it, and he shames the throne with his lust. The second era starts with David handing the throne over to Solomon, the high point of Israel's kingdom, foreshadowing a coming millennial kingdom. But it concludes with idolatry and the people going into captivity. 
The third era starts with Shealtiel, who aided the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple being rebuilt, but those people still lived under a foreign dominion. In fact, Matthew never says the people came out of Babylon, and they had no king on their throne. Each of those eras began with potential but ended with disappointment. But now, in the fullness of time, the climax of the ages, Matthew records the arrival of a king who offers a future with no disappointment. Christ, the Savior, is born. Just what we need. I like that idea of a king who offers a future with no disappointment, Matthew. I like it too. Let's stay there for a moment, Mike, because personally, I may be in the minority here, but I find it easy at this time of year to become emotionally bedraggled by disappointments. The season seems to offer so much excitement, but it can so easily get hijacked by stress and busyness. You've got so many plans to spend time with so many people and they just can't all possibly happen. Or maybe they just don't seem to last long enough. Or you're so excited for someone to open that gift that you've worked so hard to prepare or purchase for them. And maybe they don't seem half as enthused by it as you were. Or you're dreaming of a white Christmas and there's not a flake in the forecast. You're looking forward to a wonderful Christmas dinner and you burn the turkey and forget to take the pie out of the freezer. Okay, stop right there, Matthew. You're starting to get me down about Christmas. Sorry, this is what happens. But let me let me try and fix it by reminding you and all of our listeners, make sure you take some time amidst the busyness and the stress to think about the one who was born king and who will usher in a new era without disappointments. He will rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. It is a great blessing, friends, to lay claim to the one who was born king of the Jews and say, he is my king. And by grace, I've been granted a place in his kingdom that will not disappoint. And even while we have all these other distractions in life, his kingdom is still what our lives should be most preoccupied with. Amen. But Matthew, I'm seeing we're drawing to the end of our time and we haven't even got to the end of the genealogy yet with Joseph and Mary. So can you just take us there for a couple minutes? Sure. Thank you. That is down at verse number 16. And of course, the scriptures are so beautifully careful in how they tell this part of the story. I said a few minutes ago how this genealogy of grace sees a savior coming from some messed up people, but in another sense, he doesn't come from them. The book starts with the phrase, the book of the genealogy or generation of Jesus Christ. You get that phrase one other time in scripture, Genesis 5, the book of the generations of Adam. There's a recurring phrase in that genealogy in Genesis 5, and he died. That's the recurring phrase. It'll say so-and-so lived X number of years, fathered so-and-so, lived X number of years more, and he died. Next guy, same thing, and he died. That, that goes through all of Genesis 5 with one notable exception. There's a recurring phrase in the book of the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so, and he's the father of so-and-so, and that continues, and that language is all the way down to verse 16, where we find the one exception, Jacob the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus? No. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Joseph did not father Jesus in that sense. When it says of whom Jesus was born, grammatically it refers only to Mary and not to a union of Joseph and Mary, because this holy child is fulfilling the ancient prophecy of Isaiah, as Matthew says at verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That's amazing grace. You see, I mentioned there was 
one exception to the recurring phrase of Genesis 5, that phrase, and he died. The one exception was Enoch, who did not die. So the one exception in Genesis 5 is about a man who went up to heaven without dying. That's amazing. But the exception of Matthew 1 is more amazing. It's about a man who came down from heaven in order to die. That's the ultimate reason why this is a genealogy of grace, not only for the sinners who form a part of it, but because of the ultimate grace that comes at the end of it, Jesus, who saves his people from their sins. Just have a listen here for a moment and take note of these lovely lyrics. Silent love that one line there and that truth that at the birth of the Lord Jesus, we saw the dawn of redeeming grace. Excellent, Matthew. Thank you for taking us through this genealogy. And as I just pull back and reflect on this, I, I look at this big, long list of names that somehow leads to Christ. And one of the comforts I find from the Lord Jesus's family tree is how God is able to take these broken stories of all these different people and weave them into a connection with Jesus Christ. And that gives hope for us mm -hmm. in our brokenness and weakness. Uh, we have been made part of the Lord Jesus's family now, and Amen. he can tie it all in together into part of his great, beautiful story of, of salvation. What was it, a week or two ago, we released a bonus episode of book recommendations, and maybe I could just throw out another one for families with children. Andrew Peterson has written a beautiful little song and it's accompanied with a book. You can look it up and buy it on many, multiple places. The Ballad of Matthew's Begets. And uh, catchy tune. Our family actually memorized it. It's lots and lots of fun to sing. Our kids are always asking for it this time of year. And so a little book recommendation for free for all our listeners. Okay, thanks everyone for tuning in today. It's great to have you with us. And we pray the Lord's blessing upon you. Yes, God bless everyone. Amen.